0: Let me read our scripture passage for us on page 8 of our bulletin from John chapter 19, verses 13 to 22 and 28 to 30. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: Good evening, Exilic Church. It's really good to be here. I've heard a lot of you saying that it feels surreal to see faces, to hear voices, to gather for worship. And like many of you, I've waited for this moment for an entire year. But you know what? doesn't quite feel like I imagined it would. In my head, I pictured myself backflipping down the aisles. And yes, in my head, I can absolutely do backflips. I imagined myself high-fiving every member, fist-pumping my way up to the stage, screaming at the top of my lungs, Let's go! We're back. But this is not quite the celebration that I envisioned. Don't get me wrong. My joy is very full and very real right now, but it's muted. Because we've survived to this point, but some of us just barely. Our time apart for so many has been brutal. And we regather in person tonight, not skipping into the Fitzgerald ballroom, but so many of us limping, even staggering. Since we last met over a year ago, I have prayed with so many of you who have lost jobs, friends, Grandparents and parents. Our collective mental health has been battered as we've battled depression, anxiety, addictions, burnout, loneliness. And if that weren't enough, the past two and a half weeks have added another layer of trauma to our community. In our community groups and in my personal conversations, so many of you have shared with me how hurt and angry you are by the hate crimes in Atlanta and, tragically, in our own city, in our own neighborhoods, to the most vulnerable of our people. Our sisters have shared with me how they're changing the way they dress when they go outside. Wearing hats and sunglasses to hide their Asian features. We're all changing the way that we walk. Our routes. We're avoiding the subways. We're avoiding the dark. And as your pastor, I'm worried for your safety, even in getting home from service tonight we gather on this good Friday but so many of us hobbling hurting and grieving we need good Friday tonight perhaps more than ever we need a savior but not just any savior We need a savior who knows our pain. We need a Jesus who knows what it means to be vulnerable. Who knows what it means to be beaten senselessly on the street while those who should help him look away and close the door. We need a friend who staggers bearing our burdens of trauma, guilt, and shame. We need a Jesus who in his final moments makes sure that an older grieving widow will be cared for. What we need tonight is to know how something as horrific and tragic as the cross could possibly be called good. So tonight, I invite you all to sit with me beside the cross, to behold your king as he dies for you. I want to point you this evening to the king who subverts, the king who substitutes, and the king who submits. First, the king who subverts. Look with me at verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic abatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. See the irony <clears throat> in these verses the contrast between two rulers it is deliberate by this time jesus has already been flogged for those of you who are not familiar with the roman custom of flogging two soldiers would each have leather whips studded with pieces of metal and bone which would tear away pieces of flesh with every lashing roman scourging it was often fatal By the end of it, Jesus' back would have been in shreds. The bleeding staunched only by the purple robe he was given. A crown of thorns is driven into his skull. And a Roman battalion of soldiers has spent time mercilessly beating and mocking him. Mark tells us that it's a whole battalion. That means almost 500 soldiers taking turns, hitting Jesus, spitting on him, hurling insults at him. By this time, by this verse, Jesus is staggering. He's bloody. He's swollen. He's barely recognizable. Pontius Pilate takes his seat at the judgment seat as Jesus sways before him. And he says to the Jews gathered there, Behold your king. To everyone there, it is crystal clear which one of these men looks like a king. Pilate, dressed in royal robes, armed with strength, an entire battalion of soldiers at his command, seated at the seat of judgment. Power, might, seated. Jesus, on the other hand, is alone. Abandoned by his friends and disciples who deny him repeatedly and even vehemently. He's naked except for a flimsy purple robe meant to mock him. Blood, sweat, tears, saliva, and shame pour down his body. He struggles to keep his balance, and the ironic sarcasm of Pilate, Behold your king. You know, at the core of the human struggle, it's this unending search for more. Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit in the garden because they wanted to become like God. They weren't satisfied with the relationship that they had with one another and with God. They wanted more. And all of us are searching deep down for significance and status. We're deeply dissatisfied with what we have, and we're looking for greatness, and we're looking for it in our bank accounts in our careers, in our possessions, in our relationships. We measure greatness by how much we gain. What Jesus demonstrates for us is that true greatness is measured by how much we give. A great king is a king who gives to his people rather than a king who takes From his people. A true king uses his authority to benefit others, not himself. And Pilate, in this passage, he is motivated entirely by self preservation. Every decision he makes, it's to protect and promote his status. He doesn't doesn't really believe that Jesus is guilty, he doesn't believe that Jesus is a threat. I mean, look at him. He can barely stand. But the insistence of the Jewish leadership, that is a threat. So he accommodates their demands. And the true irony here is that Pilate, while on the surface he appears to be kingly, he finds himself governed by the will of others. And you know what? He's so afraid The the pomp and circumstance, the the displays of strength, military dominance, they're all just a facade to hide an insecure and scared little man. In fact, all of the men at the crucifixion are portrayed as either weak, cruel, evil, insecure, or afraid. The Jewish leadership, they're, they're afraid to confront Jesus directly. So what do they do? They plot and scheme behind his back. And then even after their plan works, <laughs> what do they do? They nitpick with Pilate over the wording of the sign hanging above Jesus. Pilate had written, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the chief priests, they come and say, um, Pilate, can you change the sign? and have it read, this man said he was king of the Jews? I mean, come on. (laughs) The Roman soldiers, they're all vindictive. They're cruel. 500 men beating and mocking an unarmed man, and then gambling on his remaining clothing. The disciples, all except for one, have fled. And yet John tells us, in verse 25, that there are four people who refuse to abandon Jesus, and you know what? They're all women. They stand beside the cross. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. While the men are all evil, cowardly, and insecure, these four women are faithful, resilient, and brave. And you know what? In this male-dominated culture of the first century, to hold these overlooked women up for all to see as paragons of virtue and courage— incredibly countercultural and radical of the time. They embody the same greatness as Jesus himself, giving of themselves rather than receiving. You know, one thing I've learned about myself these past two and a half weeks is how little I understand about the experience of women. As victims of injustice the added layers of oppression that they experience every day these are things that I didn't think enough about and I've spent a lot of time repenting these past two weeks for not supporting my sisters more not listening more not seeing them more exilic sisters I want to say to you I am truly sorry For the times when I have been insensitive to or ignorant of your struggles. And I hope it can be a comfort to you now for you to see a king in these verses who knows you. Someone who sees you. Someone who loves you. In the gospel account, it's always the women who come to Jesus first and leave him last. It's because they see in this king someone who truly understands, someone who truly values, someone who truly uplifts them. Sisters, the God who made you fearfully and wonderfully women is the same God who in his final moments sees and loves you. Look at verse 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. This is moments before Jesus' death. The last thing he does before he dies is to make sure that his mother is taken care of And provided for. Jesus is not a king who is too busy condemning unjust systems and powers to see to the affairs of a grieving widow and mother. This king subverts the world's priorities, he redefines greatness, and he gives of himself completely. But you know what? It's not enough for us just to have a king who subverts. It's not enough for Jesus to merely show you what greatness truly is. It's not even enough for Jesus to know you and see you. Jesus on the cross becomes you. He dies on the cross as your substitute and mine. And as we sit by the cross tonight, we have to look at our own sin. Because in so many ways, we're more like the bad guys in this story than the faithful women. You know, Jesus is not a king who just deals with the sin out there. Your biggest problem and my biggest problem, it's not ultimately that we are victims of injustice but rather that we are perpetrators of it. What we need more than God's justice is the mercy of God. And especially if you profess to be a Christian, then your sin is much more abhorrent and reprehensible. You know, Judas, he will forever be known as the betrayer. Why? Because he was one of the privileged twelve living with Jesus hearing his teaching seeing his miracles every single day just hours before he betrayed Jesus Jesus was on his hands and knees washing Judas's feet and yet Judas can stand up get up leave and go betray Jesus with a kiss if you are a christian and if you think that others need grace more than you do, then you do not understand your sin. Keep this in mind. The Roman Empire was awful. And while Jesus in no way ever affirmed the atrocities of the Roman Empire, their violence, their idolatry, their sexual immorality... Jesus' strongest condemnation and criticism was directed toward the hypocritical religious leaders who should have known better. What upset Jesus so much, more than Roman brutality, it was religious hypocrisy and abuse. Jesus hated man-made traditions. He hated the abuse of women. He hated the neglect of the poor. Church, make no mistake. Jesus hates COVID-19. He hates poverty. He hates racial injustice. He hates systemic oppression and misogyny. He hates mass shootings. But you know what Jesus hates more? Your sin and mine. Your hypocrisy, your silence, your failure to uphold justice, your selfishness and apathy. He hates it so much that he came to the cross to remove it from you, to become your substitute. We cannot sit by the cross this evening and not lament our own sin. We cannot see our king die as our substitute and not look with fresh horror upon our hypocrisy and shame. Jesus did not die just for the general sins of the world. He died to take your greed, your lust, the deep buried ugliness and shame that you don't want anyone else to see or know. All of your sin transferred to his account. He does it all, and he does it all the way. At the moment of his death, he declares, it is finished, the most important words literally in all of human history. No more sin, no more guilt, no more shame, not one penny of debt left, not one sin unpaid for. Paid in full. He died as your substitute to make full and complete atonement for you and me. The Gospel of John from the very beginning has made this abundantly clear. As soon as John the Baptist sees Jesus in John 1, he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, in our passage today, he is that Passover lamb of God who is slain for us to take away our sin. If you are here tonight, either in person or virtually, and if you have not placed your trust in Jesus as your substitute, as your Passover lamb, I want to invite you to come, give your sins to him, and receive his grace. There is room for you at the cross. Look with me at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The sign read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, if you were not a Jew, and you passed by the sign, and you read this, you might have thought, well, I'm not a Jew. This isn't my king. This isn't for me. But then, you might have noticed that the inscription is not just written in Aramaic for the Jews of the city to read. It's also written in Latin, the official language of the Roman Empire. Maybe this message is also for those living in the Roman Empire, not just the Jews of this city. But wait! It's also translated into Greek, the lingua franca of the day, the language of commerce, the language of the known world. Maybe this message is not just for the Jews, not just for Roman citizens. Maybe this message is translated for me. Friends, perhaps you live in a country where people tell you that you do not belong. Maybe you live among a people who imply every day that you don't matter. Maybe your people are being killed and erased. Maybe you have gone unseen and unheard your entire life. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, this message is for you. There is room for you at the cross. You belong to this King. So come to this king who sees, who hears, who knows, who welcomes you. My last point this evening is the king who submits. Our passage, it ends today with Jesus doing the one thing. You had one job. One thing a king should never do. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. What kind of king does that? What kind of king submits to his enemy? What kind of king bows to evil? There's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and it's on the first page of your bulletin. He said this in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Church, Good Friday is not the end, it's only the beginning. Jesus bows in order to get beneath the weight of our sin so that he can stand in glory and victory. He descends into the grave, but the grave cannot contain him. He lowers himself, but Philippians 2 tells us that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, every appearance of the cross is one of finality. Death is the great enemy that comes for everybody. And even for us, it feels like in the past year that we have been surrounded by death. You know, in John 11, it's one of my favorite stories. Jesus miraculously raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus stands at the tomb and with a loud voice he shouts into the grave and calls Lazarus out of death. And amazingly, Lazarus emerges from the tomb. But John tells us that his face is covered, his hands and feet are bound by his grave clothes. And you know what? This is a picture of how I have felt all year. I'm alive, but barely. Death still surrounds me. My eyes and my mouth are covered by it. My hands are tied. My feet are bound. I cannot move. I hobble out of the grave, ready to return to it. And I know that tonight is Good Friday. But I always end up preaching on Good Friday and never on Easter Sunday. So indulge me as I give a quick spoiler for what happens on Sunday. In John chapter 20, when John and Peter get to the empty tomb, they peer in. And the first and only thing they see is grave clothes. And you know what? They're folded up. And I always thought, hmm, that's an odd detail. Why fold it? Who folded it? Well, when do you fold clothes? You fold clothes when you're about to put them away, when you're done wearing them. Lazarus came out of the grave still bound because one day he would return to the grave. But Jesus Christ, when he rises from the tomb, he is done with death. He has no more need for grave clothes. He's not coming back to it. Our king bows his head to death on the cross, but that is the one and only and last time he will ever do so. The king submits on Friday, but he stands on Sunday. And he stands us up with him. We not only die with Christ, but he calls us up out of death. And death no longer has any claim, any hold on us. This is the good news that we need today. I want to end with a quote from a Scottish Presbyterian missionary named John Patton who was born almost exactly 200 years ago. When he was 34 years old, he took his pregnant wife to the New Hebrides Islands of the South Pacific to minister to natives, and these natives were known to be cannibals. In fact, missionaries who had attempted to go there just 20 years prior had been killed cooked and eaten just a few months after they arrive his wife mary gave birth to a son peter but she died just a few weeks after giving birth and then peter died a few weeks later john dug their graves with his own hands and then He slept every night on top of their graves so the natives wouldn't steal the bodies to eat them. Almost daily, his life was threatened by the natives. He stayed on the island for four more years ministering, and in that time, only two people were converted. He became very sick with no hospitals or doctors to help him. And one day... A crowd was trying to kill him. And one of his converts agreed to divert the crowd while he scrambled up a tree to hide. And he waited hours for the mob to leave before he could climb down and escape the island on a boat. And he would later write about this experience. And I want to read you his words. He writes this, I climbed into the tree and was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe, In the arms of Jesus, never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and when the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to feel his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then. Exilic Church, you do. You absolutely do. And tonight we gather around his tree and we find ourselves far from alone. Behold your king. He will not fail you. And that is what makes Good Friday so good. Will you pray with me?